Hey, what's up, everyone? Uh, Shane Larson here, host of the Game Time Guru podcast. This is going to be an amazing uh, interview that you're going to want to tune into and take some notes. There's going to be a couple of times in this interview where you're going to want to rewind some of the things that are said and listen to it again and again because our guest is going to be dropping some big time knowledge on it. I want to remind you guys in the description of this podcast, you'll also see that I am an affiliate of Canva. If you follow me on social media platforms, you'll see that I do a lot of audiograms and different graphics and so forth. I utilize Canva for that. And I have an affiliate link for you guys to sign up. If you want to do the same thing with your brand or business and utilize Canva as your tool, make sure to check this link that's in the description for that. But again, on this episode, as we get into this, we're bringing on an amputee who battled with bone cancer at a young age and then decided to adapt and overcome and continue to push the limits of what I guess the normal general public would think is acceptable. And he is, he was able to have a very successful career in sports and in education. And now he's having an amazing career in his profession. Uh, you're going to hear all about it today on the game time guru. So what time is it? Game time. This is the game time guru podcast where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. I am your host, Shane Larson. Five and a half years running into the show, and uh, man, I am so grateful for everybody that has tuned into this show and all the guests that have been on the show in the last five and a half years as we have reached 111 countries at the time of this recording. Uh, we're in all 50 states, and we continue to rise, and that's thanks in large part to everybody who has been part of this journey from day one. Um, if this is your first time listening to the episode, or sorry, to the podcast for that matter, because maybe you know our guest, I always encourage people like, hey, if this is your first time listening, awesome. Welcome aboard. I, I love having you here. Enjoy the show, and if you enjoy it, just leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. That's all I ask you to do. Uh, it helps get the show out to more people. That's how it works. More people who leave reviews on the podcast platform, the more the the show can get out to more and more people. So um, I, that's all I ask is that people people share it. So thank you to everyone who's followed me on my social media platforms and have followed the show. I uh, just really, really appreciate all the support from day one. Um, in the introduction, you're going to already kind of have an idea of who I'm speaking to. And this is a super inspirational story. I got to give a shout out to Rick Garcia. Uh, Rick is a good friend of mine. I met when I moved to Nampa, Idaho. Um, he happened to be in my ward for church. And uh, we, we connected through basketball and, and whatnot. And Rick reached out to me a couple weeks back and told me about this guest. And, I, and he tells me, hey, would this be someone that you'd be interested in, in interviewing if I reached out to him? And he tells me a little bit of the background. I'm like, dude, that's a perfect guess. What do you mean? Is this someone you're interested in? I'm like, absolutely. So shout out to Rick. And uh, for for bringing um, us together here for this particular interview, but uh, I'm going to introduce my guest here. We're going to get to know his story. His name is Kaloa Wolfgram, and uh, I probably butchered it, but he's nice enough to say that that's that's how you pronounce it. So Kaloa, thanks so much for joining the show, man. Yeah, no, thanks, thanks, thanks for having me. Um, super happy to um, to to talk about a little bit about some of my story. Um, it's it's always kind of funny. I think me and my family kind of are like, oh, just like kind of a normal, normal guy and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's sometimes funny when you hear people say, hey, like your, your story is, is, is unique or, or inspirational, or whatever it is. And um, so, so happy to share what I can. Also, you know, big thanks to, to, to Rick Garcia. He was uh, also in, in a, involved in the youth group uh, in my church growing up. And um, we actually played basketball together as part of an in and out league. 
um, <laughs> years and years ago. But uh, yeah, ha- happy to be here, Shane. And uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. How cool. How cool the connections in this world, man. I never thought like, you know, you never know who knows who and and when you're going to run into somebody and what kind of influence they're going to have on your life. So shout out Rick once again. Um, Here's the situation. We're going to we're going to tell the audience a little bit about your story starting when you were a young child, Kaloa. So young child, from what I understood, you know, you got diagnosed with uh, a form of cancer. Um, and you were at the age of four from what I had read, but if you could rewind the clock a little bit, maybe talk to us about that. Obviously you were young. I do wonder though, like people are gonna be like, Whoa, you just kind of like just jumped right into it. Didn't you Shane? But like, this is kind of where the story sort of begins. And then we'll kind of get into your sports journey and how this is all tied in. But it started at a very young age with you facing some adversity with bone cancer. So do you remember those days as, as a four-year-old or do you have like memories from your parents maybe that they've talked about? Um, and do you, can you kind of elaborate about what life was like as a, as a, a child dealing with bone cancer? Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, for, for better or worse, uh, I have a fair bit of memories from, from the time that I started having issues with my leg around four or five. And I don't know if it was because, um, it was you know traumatic or whatever it was, but, uh, I remember a fair bit. I, I remember it started with, um, I just had pain in my leg. And so I'd wake up in the middle of the night as a you know, four or four and a half year old. Um, and it would just be like this throbbing pain in my thigh and going to my parents' room and, you know, my, my, my dad would rub my leg out and, and we thought, you know, maybe just like a cramp or, you know, I was, I think I was in like T-ball and, you know, as a kid, it's, you know, you, you get bumped and you get bruised all over the place. You fall off something at, at, at the playground and, um, you don't necessarily have the vocabulary to, to explain, um, you know, maybe precisely what it feels like. So it's hard to differentiate between what a bruise feels like versus a, you know, a bump or whatever it is. And so I remember just waking up a lot, having pain in my leg and my parents took me to the doctors a couple of times. Um, for several months, the doctor said that it was a uh, growing pain, so you know, nothing to worry about, just a uh, typical, you know, little kid type of stuff. Uh, and then it kept going on uh, about for another couple of months. And it got to the point where I was starting to limp on my right leg. Um, and that's when my dad said, Hey, you know, that, I, don't, I don't think that's normal. I don't think that's growing pains. Um, why don't you take him to the emergency room, uh, and have him do an x-ray. And so my mom took me to the emergency room. Uh, they do an x-ray and, and it comes back that looks like there's a tumor. Uh, it's about six inches long in my right leg. And so they, you know, they do a biopsy to figure out that it's cancer. Uh, and I do remember, you know, them uh, telling me, they sat, sat down, me and I, I had two older siblings at the time. And, you know, we had a little family meeting said, hey, you know, you know, he has cancer. This is what it means. And in our family, um, you know, cancer didn't have the greatest of outcomes. My, my grandpa died of cancer. Uh, my great grandma died of cancer. And so kind of in our family, there was this like cancer equals, you know, death, right? That, that was the experience that we had had with cancer. And so it was, you know, pretty somber, pretty serious moment um, for our family. But uh, I think, you know, one of the things I'm grateful about is that I, I did have it as a kid. And so, um, you know, children are sometimes naive to some of the realities of life in a good way. And so it kind of was just like, okay, does it doesn't mean that I can still play. Like, can I still play outside? Yeah, you can still play outside. Can I still do this? Yeah, you can still do that. And so it didn't, it didn't affect me maybe as much as it would have affected me, I think, if I had it like today. Um, and so, so that was like the first, you know, cancer started having all these surgeries. Um, they're trying to figure out what to do. Basically the option that they gave us, and we went to a whole bunch of people, went to uh, doctors at UCLA, USC, Stanford, they'd have all these, I remember being like paraded in front of a group of, uh, doctors, you know, 15, 16 doctors all in their white coats, things like that. And they would explain my case and then they would discuss it and they bring me in afterwards and say, okay, you know, kind of this like think tank type of, um, counseling and, and here's what we do. And basically at the end of it. Because I had cancer in my femur, 
they said that the best uh, thing to do was to amputate my leg through the femur. But what that means when you amputate a leg through the femur, uh, up all, all the way up to the hip, which is where how the cancer, how high the cancer went up, uh, means that there was nothing left to connect a prosthetic to. And so they said, you know, we 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 think the best thing is for you to amputate, but that means that you will not be able to use a prosthetic, which means that you will be in a wheelchair or on crutches for the rest of your life. <clears throat> my parents, um, you know, didn't want to make that decision for me at that time. Uh, my parents had a pretty radical approach to, you know, kind of letting us make decisions that would affect us the rest of our lives. And so they said, look, we don't, we don't want to do that now um, because if we make that decision here, that, that has a whole bunch of, you know, long-term consequences that we, we will impose on him maybe without his, you know, kind of input as a four-year-old. And so my dad found uh, an engineer in France uh, who was, who created this, um, innovative, you know, kind of hadn't been tried before surgery, which replaced, which would replace my femur bone with an artificial femur, metal femur. And the metal femur could be heated up by a laser from the outside as I grew and it would grow with me. So every year I'd go in and they'd lengthen it an inch or two. And I'd go in again next year and lengthen an inch or two. It had never been done before in the United States. And my, my dad found this guy in 1999, it's the beginnings of the internet. Uh, he was, you know, kind of looking on our um, you know, dial-up connection and, and Googling things and, and found this guy and found the surgery and proposed it to our doctors. And they, they, they said, yeah, let's try it. And, and we were okay with, with the experimental nature of it. Ended up working. Um, and so I was the first one to receive that. It's called a Phoenix uh, bone. Received that in 99 and then went through a year of chemotherapy. Uh, you know, lost my hair, all that, uh, but was able to walk right now. So I had a normal leg. The only thing that different was that my femur bone was made out of metal instead of, you know, normal, normal bone. So that, that was fantastic, right? That worked uh, for years and years and years. Um, and then right around when I started to uh, grow 12, 13, I was growing a lot. I was, I'd, I'd broken the femur bone several times. And, uh, the femur bone had started to wear away um, some of my hip socket. And so they're trying to figure out what to do. And uh, we found another uh, experimental surgery, or not experimental, um, let's say new type of surgery, which was they could basically reshape the femur using the fibia and tibia and ankle of, of your existing leg and, and, and replace it and basically use your foot as a knee and there's a whole bunch of reconstruction, that kind of stuff. And, um, we, you know, again, it just so happens that a guy living 30 minutes from us was the world expert in that in Southern California, in that particular type of surgery. There's no one else in the country and likely at that time in the world who had done as many of those types of surgeries he had done. Uh, his name was Dr. Helmstetter out of, uh, was, was with Kaiser. So he performed that surgery on me. Um, and that, that surgery was, uh, I think it, it, it signified something, something pretty important to me because um, when they were doing the surgery, it was, not, it was not clear at the time that it would work. Uh, part of the problem had been that I had been in a lot of casts as I was breaking that bone and, and growing and things like that. And so my bones had atrophied in my right leg pretty significantly. And the surgery required a lot of reconstruction, right? They needed to cut bone and, and, and uh, nail bones together. And if the bones are weak and brittle, then you know they typically won't stay uh, welded together, right? Because they'll kind of rip or they'll tear away. And so the doctors, after I had that surgery, I remember the doctor came up to me and he said, he said, um, and this, and this doctor is, you know, maybe not particularly, you know, we hadn't talked about religion before or anything like that. Um, but, but he came up to me and this is a doctor, right? It's a medical setting. I'm, I'm sitting in the recovery bed after we had the surgery. They told me it was successful, which is great. It took 13 hours, but he came up to me and he said, uh, he said, God knows you. And I was like, uh, you know, it's, it's not something you expect to hear from your doctor waking up from surgery. Uh, and he said, um, you know, when we tried to do the surgery uh, twice, uh, I had called it off. I said that it couldn't work, call it off. The blood wasn't circulating. 
uh, uh, won't be able to do it. And he said, uh, he, and he said, he said, no human, uh, no physician could have performed the surgery without, without help um, from the other side. He said on the third time that we decided to try, and he said, there was one doctor in there uh, that had kept saying, do it again, try it again, try it again. And he said on the third time, I said, I'm going to try this last time, then we're going to be done. We're going to, and, and it, the, 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 the high risk here was, if they couldn't do that surgery to reconstruct my hip and everything, because they're already in there cutting things, moving things around. And, and I had to sign a waiver beforehand, you know, 13 year old signing this waiver saying, if that surgery wasn't successful, they'd have to amputate the entire leg from the hip down um, because they're already in there cutting things and they wouldn't be able to put the leg back together. And so he said, you know, we're trying to do this last thing where we're, you know, using the tibia and fibia to replace the femur and, you know, reconstructing the hip and doing all this kind of stuff. And he said, um, the very last time, you know, he said we did it and miraculously it held up. And he goes, uh, there's no way that I could have done that on my own. I don't think any surgeon in the world could have done that without some help from the other side. Um, and that was, uh, that was, that was pretty powerful for me. You know, felt like maybe there's something I'm supposed to do here. Uh, maybe something with sports, uh, because the whole reason of having my leg, um, was to allow me to, to walk and run and do all the things that for years I hadn't been able to do when I was breaking things and in casts and on crutches. And so for a lot of ways for me, the amputation was liberating, um, instead of, you know, uh, disabling as I, uh, that, that, that kind of started my sport, my sports journey, get my prosthetic at 13. Uh, and now it kind of starts the rest of the journey. You know, it's such a wild story as I'm sitting here, there's a ton of emotions that I'm imagining that have flown through your, your, your entire life. Like as, as a child, I mean, from the time you were four years old till what you just finished up talking about 13, like, yeah, it took you maybe five, five, seven minutes to explain that, but that's nine years, almost 10 years worth of time that you were going through this, um, <clears throat> with, with all of that. I guess the stresses that you went through as a child and then the, the, the support you had from your family, would there be any advice that you might provide to other parents out there or any other that support systems out there that might be having a child going through something similar to what you went through? I mean, that's one of the things I absolutely, I struggle with is have, you know, when children get uh, sicknesses such as bone cancer, it, it happens or other sicknesses. It really, it, 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 it makes me struggle a lot. It, it's very difficult for me to comprehend but it sounds like you had a very big support system. So is there any advice, Kaloa, you'd give to people on how like a young child can face an adversity such as that, um, what they can do to, to help support you? Yeah. Um, so, so one of the things that, um, that I think you crave as, as someone who, you know, you, you know, you're different, right? Um, I remember starting kindergarten with a bald head uh, because I had, I was going through chemo um, and, and I would, uh, I started high school actually hadn't received my prosthetic yet. So I literally started high school on crutches with no leg, you know, pant leg flip flapping. Uh, and, uh, and so one of the things you crave and, and, and your day to day is, you know, so different, right. Than, than anyone else, um, you know, you wake up and how you get ready in the morning, how you shower, everything is just different. So one of the things I think you crave is normalcy. Um, and I, and, and I think that actually one of the, the, the biggest benefits that my parents gave to me is that they treated me just like my other siblings. That meant that Regardless if I had had a surgery or I was in a wheelchair, I had chores, right? I remember washing the dishes, being in my wheelchair, sitting up, washing my dishes. And it just felt like I was treated like everyone else. And so um, that, you know, didn't make me feel like I, you know, was disabled, actually. I, I, I never even like, used that word. That word wasn't part of my lexicon until I decided I wanted to get a handicapped pla parking placard so I could uh, park a little bit, a little bit closer um, and not get parking tickets in L.A. Um, and so... 
that, you know, it was just, it was just something that just did not exist for me uh, because my, my family didn't treat me that way. Uh, no, no one you know, close to me, my siblings didn't treat me that way. You know, we would still fight for who could sit in the front seat of the car and sometimes I would lose and yeah, you're sitting in the back, you know, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, you're okay. It's a little more cramped for you, but you know, so what? And, and so the, I, I actually think that, um, uh, you know, having that is, is important. I, I think the other thing though, that, that is um, probably something to be mindful of in a situation like this is that it does require a decent amount of, support from sometimes in the extended family. Um, we were lucky that living in Southern California, we had uh, some, some aunts. I, I had my, my mom's um, aunt lived uh, just 15 minutes by. And, you know, my mom stayed with me in the hospital. Uh, every single day that I was in the hospital, my mom stayed with me. And uh, that meant that a lot of people had to come in and kind of help with my siblings, right? People had to pick them up from, from school. People had to drop them off at things. People had to you know, help out with meals. And, and that kind of thing is important because when you, when you do have something like that happening in a family, you kind of need to, you know, focus maybe a little bit more energy and resources from the family onto, onto that person. And so being able to have some support system, whether that's through church, family, um, other, other, other friends, you know, those kind of things uh, to, to, to help out and fill in the gaps is, 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 is huge. That's so insightful. I really hope that people who are listening to this rewind that and listen to that. Um, it's so important uh, to, for you to support people. You know what I mean? And that, and I, I love that you mentioned like, whether it be your church group like that community, if it's your family community, like that's such an important aspect of having them around. So just, I hope people take notes on that. That was huge. Um, as you're 13, you, you mentioned the, the phrase liberating, right? You almost said that being, you know, the amputation was almost liberating, um, for you because of the fact that you kind of just wanted to be able to do some of the other things that you hadn't since, been able to do, uh, from the time you were four years old and dealing with all this back and forth, the surgeries and everything, all the complications. So my question for you, Kaloa, as we're in this, the sports part of the journey is, you know, when did you start playing sports and how did you just determine? Cause I was, t I was told, and I watched a documentary that you were quite a basketball player too. I mean, it was like, all of a sudden you started like now you, you, you've turned into an athlete, like a solid one at that. So how did you decide that you wanted to, to, to play sports and which ones did you, how did you decide which ones you wanted to compete in? And like, yeah. how did that process yeah. go, man? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so my, my family's, you know, big into sports, I've always been, uh, you know, several family members played in the NFL, uh, you know, D1 athletes all throughout, um, you know, those kind of things. So sports is always a part of our family, you know, DNA, you know, I grew up going to my, my siblings, um, you know, volleyball games, football, baseball, that, you know, all, all the whole, the whole thing. And so I was always around sports and I, and I, you know, I did what I could, but I was always on crutches, right? Because in between each of these surgeries, you know, you have five, six months of recovering stuff. And so I would just do what I could on crutches. Um, and so the way that I actually first got into sports was, um, you know, and maybe this was a, a nod to a future uh, lawyer was that I, uh, when I was 13, so I had my leg amputated and had to go start going to physical therapy. And uh, boy, I hated physical therapy, um, just absolutely despised it. And that was partly because they made you wear these like super tight shorts when you did it. Um, and it's just like, it's just like I don't know, it's kind of a weird, like, and you like do these little like, you know, you know, stand on this leg and then do this. It was like super boring. And, you know, a 13 year old kid, you don't want to be doing that. And, and I was doing it like three or four times a week. And so I struck a deal with um, my, my physical therapist. I said, look, I, I get it, right? I, I get that I, I need to be, you know, walking on my leg because that strengthens the bone and helps me, you know, create the, the, the visual connection with the foot, right? Because you have to get used to walking on something that is not your body, right? It's like um, having a, this, this, this appendage that's connected to you. Um, you have to figure out the spatial. Like, I, I get it, but I don't like the medium of physical therapy, right? And so I said, okay, what if instead, you know, we had a basketball hoop in our front yard. Um, you know, most, 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 most houses just have, you know, just had one. And, 
and we had one and I said, look, what if, what if instead of coming to physical therapy 30 minutes, you know, four times a week or whatever, three times a week, um, what if instead I shot around, played basketball, you know, chasing the ball, bending down, um, you know, jumping, doing all the things that we do in physical therapy anyway, but I'll do it, you know, something that's a little bit more fun that's shooting around my basketball hoop, right? And I also don't have to wear skin tight uh, shorts. And, uh, and she said, yeah, you know, fine. You know, so long as you commit to this and you come in like once a month just to make sure that, you know, things are progressing, let's do that. So that's how I started. Um, so I would, you know, the beginning I have, you know, one crutch while I was still learning how to use my prosthetic and I have a cane and, you know, I would just kind of shoot and, um, you know, walk around, you know, chase the ball and that kind of thing. And, and then uh, because of my physical therapy kind of developed into a habit. So then started, you know, doing more and more and um, it helped that I hit a pretty significant growth spurt right around 14, 15, went from like, I think I started high school at like five, two, five, three, and I think my sophomore year I was six foot. And so just like it shot up and, um, and so started, so then, you know, eventually it was like, you know, I, I remember eventually it was during the beginning, I would you know be a foot from the basketball, you know, basket shooting and then, you know, walking around, you know, with the cane and the crutch and chasing the ball. And then, you know, eventually you didn't have the cane or the crutch and, and, you know, started you know, going farther and farther back, shooting around and all that kind of stuff. And eventually you get to the point, um, I would say probably around 14, so maybe about, you know, about a year after my amputation that I was like, you know, able to play, you know, half court, you know, that kind of 21, I was playing at the, at the local parks and growing up in California, you know, every single park basically year round from 4.30 PM onwards is packed, right? You just have people playing pickup ball and you can play from December to, you know, it doesn't matter. It's hard of winter because it's Southern California, all the way to the middle of summer people are playing. And so I started kind of going around and playing um, just because, you know, you want to challenge yourself a little more and you get tired of playing by yourself shooting in the, in the, in the front. Um, so started doing that. And uh, that was kind of the natural evolution. It felt like to me as, you know, I, I did basketball for physical therapy and now I'm going to you know, start playing against other people. Um, and then st- joined my, my high school um, basketball team. Uh, and, and, and that was where I kind of started really uh, taking it seriously, I think, um, you know, training and, and doing things like that. And, and that, and then that, that basketball time, which, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, uh, again, kind of going back to that um, comment I made earlier about never really having this like disabled, idea or, 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 or vocabulary is uh, I would always play, you know, I never played wheelchair basketball, um, nothing against wheelchair basketball, but it is a different sport than stand-up basketball, right? The rules are different. The strategy is different. It's just, it's just a different sport. Um, and so I always played, you know, stand-up basketball, run around, whatever kind of stuff. And uh, when I was about 15, 16, I was uh, playing on our, on our varsity basketball team and, you know, we were, we were competing and blah, blah. And someone reached out to me and said, Hey, um, there is this group, of amputee basketball players they're all amputees they're you know maybe missing an arm or a leg or two legs uh and they're called amp one and they uh, travel around and, and do all these competitions and um i was like yeah let's you know let's let's play i've never played with amputees before um i didn't even know amputees played basketball i thought it was the only one and so i, I synced up with them uh we were sponsored by nike and air jordan and several prosthetic companies and a whole bunch of stuff and Got to do a lot of really cool things. Got to travel around. We played basketball against a lot of uh, college teams. We played um, several NBA halftime, you know, kind of kind of kind of things. Uh, played against NBA players and exhibitions. We would raise money for charities and and just did a bunch of that kind of traveling from the time I was about sixteen to eighteen uh, with with Amp One and, and and it was kind of you know not something that I planned originally when I was you know sitting in that physical therapist room, but it was something that evolved pretty naturally. That is the that's the, like such a cool part of this story. Um, with that being said, so amp one, I want to kind of dive into this a little bit. So the whole, the whole thing I want to kind of dissect though, is the fact that like you started your physical therapy, like your recovery process through sports, like you, you used it, use basketball as your way of kind of like 
figuring out how to utilize your, your, your prosthetic and try to figure out like this whole, this whole system. And then you, you know, naturally progress, naturally progress, naturally progress. But I'm sure it wasn't all, always just like this peaches and cream, you know, I'm sure you like, and, and this is not meant like, so don't, by any means, my, no, my, by no means am I saying that I understand what it's like to have a prosthetic leg. I'm just saying from a physical therapy standpoint, just from my perspective, after a surgery on my shoulder for crying out loud, there were days where it was great. And there were days where it was terrible. And the terrible days were really bad sometimes where I was like, I'm not making any progress. Can't move my arm. Like nothing's going to work. So I actually kind of wanted to ask that question real quick too, before we get into the amp one thing yeah. is when you were going through and trying to learn and you were progressing, how did you handle the bad days? Because I can imagine, you know, as you're trying to get used to this new form of life with a prosthetic leg, when you have those bad days, maybe the mental side of things are, is pretty tough. How would you go about getting through the tough times so that you could keep yourself, you know, on yeah. an upward trajectory? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things that every amputee will, 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 will be familiar with is when you first have a prosthetic, um, not only is, you know, the bones and all that kind of stuff, trying to get used to it, um, and walking weight bearing and all that kind of stuff, but, but you have significant amounts of callus that you have to build on, on your stump, um, or whatever is interfacing with the prosthetic, whether it's, you know, your arm or your knee or whatever it is that's, that's rubbing against the prosthetic, you know, it rubs against it every single time you step or, or move your arm, whatever it is, depending on on what amputee you are. Um, and there's no way around it, right? There's like no way around building those calluses, right? You can't take a pill. You can't, you know, put some cream on and then it becomes callus and you have to break the skin. It has to bleed, right? It has to blister. It has to be rubbed raw. It just has to happen. Uh, you build up calluses. And and so, yeah, you know, it's rough, right? I, I remember, uh, you know, taking my leg off sometimes and, and you take like, the, it's kind of like a soft covering that goes over that kind of helps and you take it off and it's just like, you know, blood running all over it because you know there was a blister and then that blister broke and then you rub the skin off from that and and the previous you know thing that scab that was you know it just and you know i i think the the thing that helps probably for for all of that um for me at least was perspective um so i you know there, there there's no other option for me right there i have to learn how to walk right i i, I will not be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life i want to have kids i want to run around with them i want to for me, I wanted to serve a mission for my church, which meant that I had to walk, um, had to walk miles and miles and miles a day. And so uh, there are there were goals that I had that I kind of kept in mind. And one of the things I like about sports is that it's really sports are kind of set up and athletics in general are set up for real easy incremental progressions. Right. And goal setting. And so, you know, I had this I remember when I first had my prosthetic on, you know, like my goal was to you know, walk from to, to the chair and back, you know, two feet. Right. And then it's really easy to then make incremental progression after that. OK, now I want to walk around the room. Right. OK, now I want to walk around the house. Now I want to walk around. Our, our yard, you know, and I would just walk around that yard, walk around over and over. I'd wear, uh, you know, foot uh, paths into the grass, just walking around, walking around. Okay, now I want to walk around the block, right? And all my neighbors would see me walking around the block, and I have to stop sometimes. And, you know, my leg is, you know, uh, I'm sweaty and it's, and it's hot outside, and, you know, my leg is hurting, and, you know, it's, it's part of it's bleeding. And, but, you know, it, it, you kind of just uh, set the little goals, right, and achieve those. And so for me, it was a lot of it was perspective, right? You have an overarching goal. I think it's important to kind of contextualize whatever our, you know, um, goals are, whether it's, I think it's difficult to have a goal. Like I want to, you know, I just want to like play basketball. Well, I think, I think there kind of has to be an, an end, right. And, and, and using that as a means to an end and having perspective on the end for me, it was like, I wanted to walk. I wanted to run with my kids. I wanted to play sports with my kids and I wanted to serve a mission for my church, which meant that I had certain physical abilities that I had to, to create. And because those goals were so important to me, there was nothing, there was no price too high right. That I would be willing to pay to, to, to achieve those goals. 
And so because of that, yeah, you know, the down days suck and the, and the good days are nice. Um, but frankly, to me, it didn't matter, right? It didn't matter if it was a down day or a good day. It didn't matter if I was tired or if I was happy. It was like, I'm going to do this every single day until I, until I get there. I think that's so cool and so important for people to understand anyway. Like that's consistency, showing up when you don't want to show up, just like doing that because you have something bigger in mind that you ultimately have to get to. And when you do have those goals, that's what helps you get through the crappy days. I think that's that's crazy. And I love that you were able to share that perspective on just how the the details of like a callus, like building the callus. That's, that's stuff that some people, I would I would probably argue the general public wouldn't even think about, quite frankly, about an amputee trying to get used to using a prosthetic. Like that's crazy. And that that's just such a difficult thing to even process. I think that's amazing though that you were able to do that. Now, Kaloa, as we get into your AMP1 um, journey and you mentioned how like you were playing with these amputees, I think it's so cool. I actually got to see a little bit of it. I, I, I read a, a little bit about this um, on your story. I think it's the one of the most rad things I have ever come across in my entire life. I was like, this is so dope. Um, and, and, and what's cool about it. And I want to, I want to re, re like reiterate what you said earlier about normalcy, right? This is where I want to ask you, you were playing varsity basketball for your high school team. And you would, you know, you didn't want to use the word amputee or disabled. I should say, you didn't want to use the word disabled in your vocabulary, but I guess when you went over to amp one and you're playing with other amputees, did you still feel like there was a sense of normalcy, although it was a league, like uh, an organization created specifically for those who were amputees? Do you yeah. feel like you had that normalcy? Yeah, yeah. So one of, one of the things that we did early on, uh, and Amp1 has evolved over the years, but one of the things we did early on was uh, we refused to play other amputees. We only played able-bodied folks. I like it. (laughs) And so that was like our, uh, that was, that was, that was like a, like an ethos of, of, of our, um, of of our team is, you know, we would play, I remember we played a lot of times in order to get around. So the NCAA has a whole bunch of restrictions on what their athletes can do. Right. And for good reason, right. They don't want their, you know, college athletes getting hurt or doing this or that. Um, And so what we did is we would play the graduating teams of many of these D1, D2 colleges, right. We go out to Indiana, Philadelphia, went to Florida, went to, you know, all over California, Texas, all the places. And um, so we take the graduating, um, you know, these are D1, D2 college teams. They would, they were graduating. And so, and, you know, they didn't, the ones who didn't make it to the NBA, right. So they were like, just going to go on to do normal jobs or maybe play overseas or whatever it was. Um, and so they had no NCAA restrictions on them and we would play them in, you know, full game, you know, two half, the whole, the whole thing, you know, refs, all that. And some of these teams we were blowing out by like 30, 40 points. Um, and these are guys who, you know, are, played, you know, college level basketball and they're playing against people who have one leg, you know, no leg, one arm, you know, and um, what, one of the things about that's interesting kind of playing with, with a team of amputees is, um, you know, it's, sometimes we lost, obviously, you know, we, we, we weren't undefeated or anything like that. And those are, those are good, good times too, to, to, you know, to get, to get your, your, um, to get your losses in. Uh, but, um, you know, one of the things that's interesting playing with amputees is, man, you, you'd be surprised at the sheer grit um, with, with a team, right. You, you know, you think about, you think about an average sports team, uh, you know, and you have those stories of, you know, like overcoming adversity, right? We, we all see them in ESPN. They're inspiring, you know, some, you know, kid overcome poverty, whatever. You have an entire team where every single one of them not only lost a limb, but then overcame it to be able to play at the level of a college athlete is, uh, you know, playing on those teams is, is, is a lot of fun. I'll tell you that. The mentality of some of those guys is is uh, just out of this world. Um, and, and, and it's kind of like a pre-vetting, right? In order to play at that level and be an amputee, like it, it already means that they have all the qualities, you know, mentally and all that kind of stuff that, that you need to be good in sports. And, and so, yeah, we had a lot of feeling of normalcy and, 
And, and you know, what would happen, what would happen when we play against these guys is, you know, we do the tip off, whatever. And, you know, they kind of take it easy uh, in the beginning. And then, you know, we do an alley-oop and, you know, a couple of us could dunk and, you know, we do, we, we, we dunk on some guy and, I don't care who you are getting dunked on by someone's one leg is not something that you take uh, lying down. And so, and then they start playing serious and, uh, and then the game is on. And so, yeah, we, we had a lot of normalcy there. And then only recently we've kind of shifted to trying to help a little bit more um, focus toward amputees, getting them playing stand-up basketball. And that's partly for a physical therapy reason, um, partly also for the sport itself. I think for the sport to be self-sustaining, you probably do need uh, intra kind of amputee competitions. Um, but, but yeah, for, for the first couple of years, that I was there, we only played able-bodied athletes. And so, yeah, I felt like a normal game of basketball. Yeah, it's just – it's so cool to me. I just – I'm, like, sitting here thinking I'm just smiling about it because, first off, I got to ask, how tall are you now and could, can you dunk? Could you dunk, like, when you were playing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, I – there are a couple of us that I could dunk. I was one of them. I'm uh, 6'3", flat-footed, so maybe 6'3 and 6'4", with shoes on. So, I'm not super tall. Dude, I'm <laughs> – so here's the deal i've only dunked like a handful of times my entire life and it was after my church mission so like in high school even i couldn't dunk. i'm six two and here i am like think this is wild man it's so cool like <laughs> that's just yeah it's just a shot to the ego i tell you what that's so cool but the other reason i was asking that is because you said you started high school at like five two five three and then just hit a yeah. massive growth spurt so to all the kids that i coach out there that are like shorties that i always make fun of <laughs> hey listen Kaloa hit his his growth spurt in high school yeah. you guys you might still have some time to 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 yeah. shout or sorry sprout up um real quick what was your favorite memory during the amp one days and who was your favorite teammate that you played with <clears throat> oh we had, a, we had a lot and actually I, i've done some stuff with them recently but uh i would say you know it's funny you know there, there are a lot of good moments we had in amp one um you know I, I, I can tell a story about you know being down by you know four and you know having five seconds left someone hitting you know like, and we had those moments those are great um i actually think probably one of the one, one of the best experiences i had um that really kind of fundamentally changed the way that i viewed uh, what happened to me and and I think my role and, and the obligation that I had as an FPT was when we were at, uh, I think it was Worcester College out in the, the Midwest. And we were playing against uh, one of these college graduating teams. And, and this is one of the teams, uh, I think I think we ended up winning by like, not a huge amount, but you know, maybe 15, 16, something like that. Um, and uh, and so afterwards we kind of stay and talk. And, and usually before we do one of these games, you know, we do some pre-game kind of like um, – uh, some some marketing. We go around, we do some local news stuff. We usually visit hospitals in the area. We'd reach out to the local prosthetic club and say, "Hey, we're doing this. Um, you know, if you have any kids that are or, or adults that you know are amputees, or maybe they're like, what can I do now that my or there some people they were like needed to have an amputation like in the next couple of months. They wanted to see like what would it look like post amputation, like how active can I be? And so we do a bunch of this kind of stuff beforehand, saying, "Hey, letting people know we're going to be in this area. We're all amputees. We're playing basketball. Like, you know, if people are interested, you know, when you bring them out and." Um, and then afterwards, we'd go and we'd you know stay for hours after the game, talking to people, you know, recommending prosthetics, you know, talking talking shop about what leg we like, what foot, you know, the whole thing. Um, and uh, this mom uh, was there um, with her son in a wheelchair, and he, uh, due to a, a rare disease he had had, the kid was maybe maybe twelve, thirteen, something like that, young kid, um, and he had recently become a quad amputee, so he had lost. Both arms, I think one above the elbow, one below the elbow, and then both knees, both legs above the knee. Um, and it was recent, um, you know, maybe in the last, I think it was in the last six, seven months, because uh, he, he, had, he hadn't been fitted for a prosthetic or anything like that. Um, and he came up to us afterwards, and, you know, he was talking, and and, um, and his mom was saying, you know, she wanted to bring him because he had been, like, super depressed. 
um, you know, kind of felt like, you know, life was over, you know, what can you do? He doesn't have arms, he doesn't have legs, you know, that, that whole kind of thing. And, and he came up to us afterwards, <clears throat> you know, this kid in his wheelchair. Um, and uh, he said, he said, he said, he said to me, um, uh, you know, one, one of the things that he said, uh, when I, when I had my amputation, you know, one of the things I thought was my life was over, right? He told me, he says, you know, there's nothing I can do. And he said, but I realized that there is something that I can do that perhaps others can't uh, as a benefit kind of to my amputation. And that is that I can inspire others by how I deal with my amputation. Um, and that, uh, <laughs> even, uh, even to this day, it, uh, it, uh, I don't know, it affects me the way that, you know, people have to go through hard things. Um, but, but even then, uh, the way that we deal with things can also be a benefit to others, benefit to society, those around us. Um, and so I think that that's probably my, my, my favorite memory um, from Amp1. Uh, in terms of my uh, favorite player to play with, uh, there was a guy whose name was, uh, his name's Richard Ramsey. Uh, he's from Arizona. He uh, was actually a, he's a footwear uh, designer at Nike. Uh, he was one of the designers of the fly issue, right? Which is kind of for people with disabilities who can't um, you know, zip up or tie shoes or that kind of thing. And uh, he has one arm. The guy is lights out shooter uh, with one arm. I mean, it is ridiculous. Uh, he would pull 35, 40 points a game on college players, NBA players. It didn't matter who we were playing. The guy was lights out uh, with one arm. And uh, it was, it was just super fun to play with him. And, and it worked because, um, you know, you kind of need, when you, if you have an amputee team, um, it's kind of nice to have people with one arm, people with one leg, because they have kind of different strengths. Typically, the people who have, uh, you know, no, uh, both legs, right, they're going to be a little bit quicker or maybe a little more faster, uh, you know, uh, faster their feet, things like that. And so they kind of are typically the guards. And then if you have kind of taller guys, um, or bigger guys, um, you know, and you can, especially in the post, you kind of need both hands to be able to go, you know, either way. And so um, I, lo I love playing with him. Uh, we won a couple of, you know, three or three championships playing together uh, over the years. And, uh, that is man all of those stories like that that's what touches the heartstrings first off and it's cool because like through sports you get to have all these experiences and you had a unique experience especially with the young the young man like giving you an idea of like perspective uh, i hope everybody understands that like they they take notes of that particular piece too of like your favorite memory because a lot of us go through different struggles and adversity and it's the way that we handle those that can inspire others like there's there's ways to find a, a positive in a lot of things. I know that sounds cliche, but yeah, I mean, for someone that was going through what he had gone through, like that's, that's absolutely wild for what he could teach you. And then it's just cool to me to hear stories of, of, of the sports stuff. Now, what people might not know Kaloa is you're, we're, we're talking about basketball and everything, but we've got to touch base on bobsledding dude. Like, <laughs> come on now. Like people are going to be like, wait, what do you mean bobsledding? So on top of being an absolute hooper, Okay, uh, a, a very a very good hooper, and you're an extremely intelligent individual as far as like education is concerned. We can get into that in just a second too. But you also did bobsledding. Now, what's funny is I had an Olympic bobsledder on my show a couple months back before they did the Olympics in China or whatever. His name's uh, Andy Blazer, and he's okay. from Idaho. So I went to high school with the, with the guy, and 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 I had him nice. on the show, and so I learned a little bit about bobsledding. And now I got to understand like you're from California, like you're down in California, like how it's all sunny down there, dude. Sunny California. So where, where did you even get into bobsledding? I guess is the question. And like, how did that like become a thing for you? Yeah. 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 It's uh, I guess it's like a uh, modern day cool runnings, maybe uh, the Jamaican, yeah. right, Jamaican bobsled. Too. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
bobsled was you know not on my radar in fact when, when someone first uh mentioned it to me i for some reason i thought bobsled was the thing with the dogs <laughs> you know you the, the, yeah. I did a <laughs> um and uh so, so what happened was I was um, I was playing basketball and uh, I was training in Utah on uh, off season. I was training with my so my, my my sister's husband, his name is Hebron Fungobo, and he was a um, NFL player. And it was I think at the time he was playing at, at BYU, maybe his last year at BYU. And so we were training together. And and uh, the way that kind of bo- a lot of bobsled recruiting happens around uh, the areas where there are bobsled tracks, just kind of you know for that for those. For, partly geographical reasons. Um, you know, there's only two bobsled tracks in the U.S., Lake Placid, New York, and the Park City, Utah. And so uh, there's a lot of recruiting that happens around um, universities in those areas, particularly like BYU and University of Utah and Park City. Um, I, I know that they, they send recruits out there all the time, uh, mainly looking for, you know, like linebackers, sprinters, you know, those kind of, those kind of guys um, who, can, who, who are interested in bobsledding. And, um, you know, we had like Lolo Jones, right, who's an Olympic uh, women's uh, – track and field athlete and they made a transition over the bobsled that's, that's not super uncommon um and so when, actually when i was there there was a um there was a lady who was doing some recruiting out there for um they were trying to put together an amputee bobsled team for the paralympics and uh they needed um you know they're, they're looking recruiting for athletes holding tryouts they had they'd been going for, for for years and years and years so that they had a team um they're looking to expand the team uh and, and make it an official paralympic sport and so I got uh, recruited. I think I was at a BYU event or something. Uh, we were working out, and then someone said, "Hey, call this person." I called that person. They put me in touch with someone else, and then finally got in touch with the person and said, "Hey, yeah, you know, I'm one of the recruiters for the, for the U.S. Uh, pair of bobsled team. Um, do you want to come out next summer? Or actually, it was that summer? Do you want to come out that summer? This was in 2011 um, and try out. So they had a big tryout, um, and uh, you know, tried out, made it. Um, I was I actually turned 16 during the tryouts, which is good because I think you had to be 16 um, to, to bobsled. Uh, and so it kind of ended up working out, made the team. And uh, so start, you know, start bobsledding. I um, finished high school early, kind of finished it up uh, pretty quick so I could, so I could train full time out in Park City, moved out to Utah um, and started training. And so uh, pretty quickly, you know, found that there was a lot of, um, in terms of, so I did a lot of like jump training when I was in basketball, right? Plot metrics, so that's going to help with vertical and things like that. And uh, that helps a lot with bobsled when you're pushing off the block, right? And doing that initial push start, um, there's a lot of just explosion force, right? It's not like marathon running. It's just, you know, huge burst for, you know, 20 meters, 30 meters if you're the driver, maybe 40 meters if you're the brakeman. Um, and so I started, started doing this training and um, got, you know, my bobsled pilot's license and was like competing uh, with, with, with the Paralympic team. And then um, in the 2012 America's Cup, um, set a couple of, of Paralympic world records at the Park City track and then uh, kind of they moved me to the national, the Paralympic national team and uh, competed in Canada, competed in the U.S. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I did that for, for from 2011 to 2013. That is, dude. Yeah, so you're you're just talking about like normalcy, never wanted. Okay, but yeah, you're doing things that aren't normal for the, the average person. Like that's, <laughs> it doesn't even matter. It's wild to me. Uh, I guess I would ask you, what is your favorite memory from bobsledding, man? And uh, what are the parallels between bobsledding and basketball? You've already mentioned like the explosion and stuff, but did you find any other parallels in that? Yeah. Yeah, so one of the things about bobsled um, that I like, uh, and it has a relation to, to – so so most most sports – most sports in the Olympics, whether it's winter, particularly summer, but, but with some winter sports too, um, you know, it's going to be the same track no matter where you go, right? Like running, running a hundred, hundred meter, you know, dash or whatever in Dubai 
other than weather stuff, is going to be the same track. It's going to be 100 meters if you're running it in Florida, right, or in Texas or in Idaho, right? Just the same track. You're running the same 100 meters. Um, one of the things I've always loved about team sports is that it's an extremely adaptive endeavor, right? No two basketball games are the same. You can play the same people, right, at the same time of day, and, and it's not going to be the same, right? There's no way that you could mimic the same exact – you know, passes are going to be different, plays are going to be different. The way the it's just going to be, you, know, you have to adapt to it, you know, and, and it's super, super different. Um, it's, like I tried swimming, uh, like competitive swimming stuff, and I just couldn't do it because it was like so repetitive, right? It's the same pool, the same, you know, black line, you're just falling back. And forth. I was like, I just can't do this. Um, so I like, I like that, that kind of uh, different nature. Like each, each game is different. And one of the things about Bob said is that each track is super, super different. And even when you're racing the same track, it can be different because of weather conditions, right? There are times where it's like super, super foggy up there. And you're in the mountains most of the time. Almost all these tracks are up in the mountains. So like the weather's crazy, right? And so there's fog there. You can't even see. There, there are several, several times I went down the track and I was a, I was a pilot where you couldn't even see the track. Like it was just so, you couldn't see two seconds in front of you and you're going 85, 90 miles an hour. Like it just purely by memorization. And so, or there are times where the track is just like, it's super cold, but there's no water, right? So, or like meaning there's no snow, there's no um, uh, mist. And so the ice is just hard and it's just fast and you're just flying down the track. And so it's just a completely, and even the way the ice is cut, right? People go beforehand, they make divots in the ice and that affects the curve of the, of the, of the turns. I was, a, I was a pilot. And so, uh, one of the things I remember doing is, uh, I would get, I had GoPros on the front of, of, of other bobsledders. Uh, when I was learning a track, uh, either my coach or other Olympians, um, put a, put a GoPro on the front of their bobsled, have them go down the track. Then I would take that GoPro and burn it to a disc and I'd put it on a big TV that I had in my training room. And I'd sit on the ground, I'd, I'd wear my tights, you know, my, my, my bobsled uh, tights. I put my helmet on and I had created a fake little bobsled driving mechanism and i would sit there in front of this tv with a gopro you know uh first person footage on there and i'd spend hours to do that every night and every morning and i'd, and I'd, and I'd pretend like i'm driving the track driving the track learning every piece of ice on that track and I'd, you had to do that for every track right so you you, you spend 100 hours learning one track then you gotta spend another 100 hours on the next track and and so so it's just so different and i, and I like that i think it was a it was a mental challenge and uh it was a lot of fun that is wild man that is wild and it, and it shows that like doesn't matter the sport you've got to put some some time and effort into film study it might not be like a football film study or basketball but yeah. it's it's film study nonetheless and i'd argue it's almost more important because you're going to be like there and it's actually like very uh i guess dangerous at sometimes if you don't like don't know what you're doing so that's crazy but what i what it kind of goes to show though as i've talked to you Kalo, during this interview is like you have figured out throughout your whole entire life how to adapt to things and how to do things at a high level uh, regardless of the situation. And so you're good at learning. You're good at like implementing things. Um, from what I saw in your story, you, you were able to serve a mission, if I'm not mistaken, and you were able to do the things that you wanted to do. You figured out a way to adapt and overcome. And then that's already, it's it's like stemmed into your, you know, formal education. For those who are listening, Kaloa, you were the first, you know, Pacific Islander to graduate from Yale Law School, if I'm not mistaken. So like, Dude, you're talking about normalcy. Here's another thing. Like, these are things that you don't normally see. So I don't know. It's wild because, like, you're exceeding all these expectations. So it's it just goes to show how dedicated you are. Um, and I want to ask you about that as, as you went to law school, Yale, first Pacific Islander to be able to graduate from, from Yale um, Law School. Talk to us about that and, uh, you know, what that achievement was like for you. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, the, the thought of law school first came into my mind, actually, when I was doing bobsled. Um, so oh, one, wow. of the, one of the things uh, about bobsled when I was on the team was not only were we trying to, you know, compete as, you know, Paralympic, you know, type of stuff and all that kind of stuff, 
Um, we also needed it to get accepted into the Paralympics, right? And so a lot of times, in order to be accepted into the Paralympic Games, you need like a bunch of requirements. I think you need like seven national teams across four continents, and you need to have like a rule book and all this kind of stuff because you know different amputations have different limitations, and there's like a point system, and um, you know because you don't want you know like for example uh, in track and field you don't want someone who's missing an arm to be running against someone who's missing both legs, right? Like, like so right. There's, there's a whole like point system and, and it's real complex. Um, and so I was a part of a committee uh, that was tasked with like kind of creating the framework around the, the sport. Um, and we were doing like wild things that like, you know, I can talk about it, but uh, at the time I, did, I wasn't telling my parents about it. Um, like we were like going, I remember one time going down there, like, can you go down and drive the bobsled with one arm? Like, 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 like could a one arm person drive a bobsled? And so I, I would, I would go down with like one arm, and using my fingers on the for this and, and like that was like really dangerous now that I think about it. <laughs> but we had to find out, right? Could you do that? At one point they were like, could you push a wheelchair and push the bobsled and then transition from the wheelchair into the bobsled? Like like wild stuff to try to figure out who could do what and stuff like that. Like just like wild stuff. And so one of the things though that came up in those discussions, um, it was a committee, right? It was an international committee, the FIBT, and we would have these discussions, you know. Um, you know, is this allowed? Is it too dangerous? Um, you know, who can who can do the sport? You obviously want to balance being inclusive, allowing you know people with disabilities to do the sport, but also not being you know foolish and reckless and being like, yeah, you know, you can do the sport, and then you know you have someone die. Um, and so we would have these conversations, and the people that were that were part of the conversation were often lawyers, and they would ask questions. The way that they would think about things was really intriguing to me. They would ask questions like, "Is changing this rule change the fundamental nature of the sport? Right? Are we creating a new sport?" Or are we adapting the original sport? So, like, this is actually a lawsuit that was in the PGA. There's a really famous, there's a really famous lawsuit in the PGA with whether or not like having a like, driving a golf caddy fundamentally changed the nature of the sport as like a, a an accommodation for someone who had a disability. I think they hurt their knee or something like that. Um, and so we were asking these questions and kind of thinking through law, thinking through policy, thinking through. And that was like I remember being really affected at that age. Like, wow, these people like really I like the way they think about things, I like the way their brain works, the way they ask questions and come to answers on questions. Um, and, that, and, then, and then it turns out that like half of those guys were lawyers, right? Um, and so that was I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a maybe I want to be a lawyer. Um, so yeah, go to, you know go to law school and um, super, you know re really enjoyed law school. Um, kind of figured out the way that the world works, uh, and um, it's, it's a fantastic education. I had this like, aha moment, um, you know, when you're in you're learning about contracts, learning how the world works, and and all these things, you kind of just like, you feel like you're learning like the rules of a game that you weren't even sure you were playing um, until you went to law school and kind of peeked behind the curtain. And um, I, I had a fantastic time, met some incredible minds, uh, have the opportunity to interact with some of the brightest legal minds and politicians of, of this century. Um, and uh, really was a, was a benefit to me. Dude, how funny the the ways things tied in, like just I'm, I'm taking notes as you're talking, I'm like on my phone, taking notes on the notepad of the little things that you're saying here. And then you know, those are the things that nobody even thinks about. First off on the committee, all those things, like how you can be inclusive, but like, yeah, we got to, but like the little thing can, <laughs> down with one arm. Can you jump in? Like, I bet your parents didn't want to hear that stuff. So it's probably going to yeah. kept it from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm thinking about like going with a wheelchair. Can you transition into the sled? Like yeah. all those little things. And then how that like kind of stemmed your mind, like of wanting to get into law. Like I, I think that's so cool. I think it's so cool, man. I think it's awesome. And it's huge congratulations to you for being able to accomplish all those things in the the way that you've, you know, kind of utilized all this and, and now you're into your professional career. But I do want to ask for the listeners that are out here wanting to know what's next for Kaloa Wolfgram? Like, what do you want to do? Uh, do you want to continue into sports while you're also working on your profession and, and, and whatnot? Or what's next for, for Kaloa? Yeah. So I've, <clears throat> I've kind of felt like there's, there's been phases um, in my life. Uh, as, I, as I look back, you know, I, I, I see my, um, 
you know, pre-13 kind of phase as kind of learning how to adapt, learning how to you know, handle adversity, kind of getting my mind right on, you know, kind of learning how to, how to be gritty um, and, 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 and kind of having some mental toughness maybe. Um, and then I felt like, you know, between 13 to uh, maybe 20 um, or 13 to 18 was, you know, kind of sports, getting my body in a way that I could do the things I wanted to do. Um, it also was kind of my first foray into the political or the professional realm um, of, you know, having a job and, uh, you know, when, even though the sports, even though the job was sports related and I got paid to do that, um, it was, you know, it was good. And then, you know, 18 to 20 was a mission, as, as we mentioned before, and that was real, real important to ground me. I think every good thing that I had kind of had some potential in before was kind of solidified during those two years. Um, and then uh, after that was, you know, education, right? And, 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 I, and I put sports in terms of professional, those kind of things on a back burner to, in order to do, take down my education, you know, four years undergrad, three years law school. Um, I just turned 27 uh, last month and, um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think I'll play professional sports ever again. Um, it's kind of, I think that phase of my life is over and I'm, and I'm okay with that. I'm, you know, I'm happy with that. Uh, I never really wanted to tie my income to uh, wearing tights, going down a mountain of ice, um, you know, as, as, as my, as full-time uh, playing basketball full-time would have probably been super cool, but, but if it was not good enough, probably do that. Um, I, so what's next is so I've, uh, <clears throat> I feel like now for the next probably five, six years, um, I have a focus on uh, building up my company. So I started a company when I was at Yale. It's a private equity company. Um, we purchased hotels and real estate. We bought about $200 million of real estate in the last seven months. Um, we've been really, really uh, grown pretty quickly um, and need to kind of double down on that. Uh, now, that being said, I do still serve on some uh, nonprofit boards and things like that that have to do with sports and entities. Um, one of my long-term goals is to improve the access to prosthetics uh, to, to youth. Uh, so there are some nonprofits ways. I think that there's a free market way that can actually, uh, do it at scale a little bit better. Um, and so I've been working on something like that behind the scenes. Uh, you know, sports will always be a part of my life. I think it's, I think it's, you know, something that's healthy. I think it's, uh, you know, in, in, in today's world where, you know, we're not, we don't have gladiators, you don't, you know, take over villages and like that. I do think that, um, you kind of need the adversity, even if it's maybe sterilized and in a sports environment, of sports, right? You need to go against someone much bigger than you, much stronger than you, and actually be scared that you will get hurt from that person. Like that doesn't exist in normal day life, right? Like it just doesn't. Know, maybe if you like live in like you know Compton or something. And I live in LA. Yeah. Like so tough. Um, it just doesn't exist that you have like like I have to like get over this like physical like you know kind of kind of thing. And so I think pr producing those kind of situations um, through sports, right? Or or where you're just like dog tired, right? And you still have to play for another fifteen minutes, and you're like I might pass out, right? Like like creating those opportunities to like. To, to have that toughness, um, both mentally and physically, is super important. I mean, it translates to everything. It translates to school. You know, there are times where you know I, I would pull during, during some finals. I pull an all nighter every other night to, to get finals done because I have you know I have a family, I have four kids. Um, it's it's you know you can't you can't you just take time to do things. And so um, you know I, I think that all of those things are important and things that are, are still part of my life. But I think um, sports will not be a full time thing. Um, although uh, I will probably continue to serve on kind of advisory um, areas and. And hopefully um, there are a couple of plans I have uh, in the next about five, 10 years uh, that I think will help uh, improve access to prosthetics. Did you just say you had four kids, Kaloa? Yeah, three and one on the way. Yeah, three and one. Okay. Yeah. So at yeah. 27, all right, let's just let's just wrap that up here. All the things <laughs> that you've accomplished and and all this stuff, you're going to school and stuff, but you had kids, you had got a fourth on the way. Like, most people in their lives, like they're probably in their 50s, 60s, are looking at it like, man, in 27 years, look what this guy has been able to accomplish in his life and what he's been able to overcome and adapt to. 
um, and all the things that he's doing. That's why I am so glad I had, had you on the show to share your story because it's super inspirational. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of seeing the rest of your journey as you go into your professional career and continue to, to build that. Um, but I'm just grateful that you were able to share that with us today. It's a, it's a really cool story. It's something that we all need to hear. And I really hope that those, uh, th those other amputees that might be out there can come across this episode and get to know more about your story and be inspired themselves and be like, okay, like there are opportunities for me out here and, uh, they can look to you as an inspiration. So I just want to say thanks, Chloe, one more time for, for joining the show and being willing to share that. And, uh, I'm inspired, man. I am, uh, I'm looking forward to just watching what you do moving forward. There's going to be stories. You're going to have books written about yourself. You're probably going to write. I bet by the time you're 30, you'll have two books. You're an established author. <laughs> I guess it's going to be wild, dude. So just thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. Thanks. Thanks, Shane. You know, it's uh, these, these kind of platforms. I know they're difficult to build. Um, you know, you, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, all the things that you do um, to, 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 to produce this, this social benefit really right for, for all those who listen and, and, and tune in. So to appreciate for the work that you do. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. For those who are out there, if you enjoyed the interview with Kaloa, make sure to give us a, a review on Apple Podcasts, and we'll be coming to you next week with another one. Take care. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars, and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.